You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Government policy has a cost. Every law and regulation passed by the government has a human toll. The Cost, a series of We Are Libertarians, is a one-on-one interview that tells the story of an average person as they deal with the outcome of policy. This is the story of Daron Caldwell and Richard Samuels as they are sent to prison for nearly 20 years. I'm joined by Brett Bittner and Chloe Anagnos in this interview as well, and they talk about what it's like to go through the criminal justice system as a young African-American male. Just as an update, both Daron and Richard are doing well and have managed to give back to their community in multiple ways. Here now are Daron and Richard's story. So you went to Washington, D.C. for what, Lil' Brett Bittner? Uh, we were there for the Justice for All Summit. It was a group of activists and writers um, that Freedom Works brought together. Um, many of you know that I, one of my best friends in the world is Jason Pye, who happens to be the director of communications there. And he thought it was very important that we participate Um, not only for the ideas that we could bring to the table, but also to take away and share in our networks. And some of the Freedom Works is a little more of like a right-leaning libertarian group, um, free market think tank. And Austin Peterson worked there. Julie Borowski worked there. Matt Kibbe worked there. It's very libertarian-leaning. Jason Pye is a great guy. Actually just made some news because he quit the Republican Party and said he wouldn't vote for Donald Trump down in Georgia. Uh, so, so what was this summit about? So the summit was essentially about how you can market the idea, uh, especially to conservatives of reforming the criminal justice system. And now wait a minute, this is a right leaning conservative group, freedom works talking Mm -hmm. about criminal justice reform and not, not like reforming it to make it harder on people, right? Correct. Yeah. They actually, you know, we joked a lot about, um, how Texas w- was the toughest on crime, and they were actually the first ones to kind of change direction to be more right on crime, to look at more diversion programs, to look at ways to keep uh, from locking people in cages. That's the only way that I can, the only way that I think of um, what we call criminal justice and the criminal and the justice system is essentially that we lock people in cages. Um, and to me, that's always the question when you say, well, there ought to be a law. Okay, so are you willing to lock somebody in a cage because they did that? Um, and one of the things that we learned was you don't call it the criminal justice system. Right. It is the justice system, and it is justice reform because it is not necessarily um, – It's not the focus isn't just about criminals. The focus is about society as a whole. Sure. Because we have 95% of the people who are in prison, who are in jail, they're going to get out. And we essentially have two choices. We can set them up to fail, which is essentially where we are today, and they're going to go right back in. Sure. Or we can work to put them on a path to success and have them be productive, contributing members of society. Right. Um, part, of the, part of what we can do to reform the justice system is stop the overcriminalization. Um, everybody in this room is a criminal. We've all done something that we could be locked up for. Sure. Um, and we probably didn't even know it when we did it. And that's the first problem. My crime? It's being too goddamn sexy. <laughs> I thought it was being too generous and thorough. But... Well, that's no crime. <laughs> Especially not in the bedroom. Am I right? High uh, five, Chloe. No. High five. Anyway. <laughs> so, so what else did we learn, Brett? So 
one of the things that we've really seen fall off when it comes to the justice system um, is no one cares about the guilty mind, the mens rea aspect, because you have the guilt, the guilty act. Mm-hmm. But there's we've criminalized so many things that nobody really cares about whether they intended to do it. We actually had a Law and Order show for I think twelve years that had Vincent D'Onofrio and uh, Jeff Goldblum that starred in it called Criminal Intent. But we've completely forgotten about the intent. Um, we are locking people up. You know, one of the things, one of the stories that will I will never forget is when I still lived in Atlanta. Uh, I lived in Cobb County, and there was a woman who was crossing the street late at night. Um, it was a busy highway between her apartment and a shopping center. And it was three quarters of a mile one way to get to a crosswalk. And it was half a mile the other way. Mm -hmm. And she had three kids with her and she was walking back to her apartment from, I think it was Walmart or grocery store. I don't remember the specifics of the story, but when she was walking back, they cut across rather than going three quarters of a mile one way or half a mile the other way to the crosswalks that were available to them. And her youngest child was hit by a car. Um, it was a hit and run. They found the driver. They never charged the driver, but they charged her hmm. in the death of her child. Um, and the jury was hung the first time. And the DA said, we have to seek justice in this situation and sought to try her again. And to me, what I was thinking the entire time was, this woman is never going to forget right. the fact that her child was struck and killed. And we're going to take her away from her other two children for 5, 10, 15 years right. or more. And they're going to grow up without their mom in their lives. And she's already going to be thinking for the rest of her life and be upset about the fact that people believe that she's responsible for the death of her youngest child. Right. And, and in a guilty way. Yeah. We can talk about liability and responsibility and you know who was responsible and and who is at fault but at the end of the day do you lock somebody in a cage that has just lost their youngest child take them away break up the family essentially i don't know the situation potentially putting their her other kids in the system right and to me that's wrong you know you take a look at some of the things from an overcriminalization perspective um you know we're locking people up for stupid stuff we're locking people up. They never hurt anybody. They never took anybody's stuff. Those mm -hmm. are the two things to me that are the, the most, they're the worst things that you can do because you're, you're either depriving somebody of their life, you're depriving somebody of their liberty, you're depriving somebody of their property. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you hurt somebody or you steal their stuff, then you're depriving them of one of those three things. Yeah. And, and if you've, uh, The House I Live In is a documentary that everybody must watch. It is absolutely fantastic. And the, the foundational principle of the house that I live in, the house I live in, is that, listen, the, we've destroyed the economy for the bottom 15% of the socioeconomic ladder. It doesn't matter. It's not, it's not a race issue. It's not a class issue. It, it's, a class, it's a socioeconomic class issue. And uh, so what do we do? We make tougher drug laws mm -hmm. because that is the only viable economic way in a lot of neighborhoods, especially like they focus on Detroit, where there isn't anything for miles in terms of jobs. 
And so then we just go to warehousing the bottom 15% because we because of globalization we have uh destroyed that economy that that could be useful for the bottom 15%. And so, you know, we as the creator of the wire, David Simon basically says it's like basically our politicians just shouldn't come out and admit we don't need these people. Let's just get rid of them. So we'll just warehouse them, we'll lock them up. It will take out their uh, opportunity, and then we'll create a business around locking those people up and make profit off of keeping people involved in prison. And that is essentially what we've done. And libertarianism believes that if if you want to smoke a V8 Chevy block engine, then that is your right. And the reason is because you are free to do with your life as you wish. And, uh, you know... Ending the war on drugs is incredibly important in this day and age because it is the foundation of the problems that we're going to talk about today. And the war on drugs, let's just talk about the origin of it. Summer of 69 was called the Long Hot Summer. You had a lot of riots. You had 68. You had the assassination of Martin Luther King. You had the assassination of... Bobby Kennedy, you had the Vietnam War raging. Summer of 69, economic pressure started to to, to uh, push down on the lower ends of the socioeconomic ladder. Tons of riots. Nixon was president, and through 69, 70, he was starting to lose the population. The riots, I mean, if you study the summer of 69, like the Baltimore riots that we just had don't even compare to to the 69 riots. And so he was starting to look like he was he was not tough on crime. He was not managing the this quote unquote crisis. And the silent majority, aka white people, uh, he was losing their trust. And so he needed to do something to look like he was in control. And let me be as indelicate as possible because he was. It was about making sure that Richard Nixon looked like he was tough on black people because they were the ones rioting so that white America would vote for him. And it was Ehrlich or Haldeman who came out in the 90s, and this was just re-released recently. They were Haldeman and Ehrlich were his main advisors. They were involved in Watergate. And they said, we created the war on drugs so that Nixon would look tough on the black population so that he could get reelected in 72. So we have destroyed entire communities, families, and lives of just generations at this point because Richard Nixon wanted to get reelected. And then, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan accelerated it, and everybody wants to look tough on crime. We're now finally starting to see in politicians like Gary Johnson and Hillary Clinton. Uh, uh, a walking back of that going, all right, we've got to do better. Um, so what I want to do now is I want to talk to Richard and Darone and just talk about the human impact of that, what that does to to your life when you are part of that class of people that go into the system. What happens when you're arrested, you go through the trial, you go to prison, and then you come out. So we'll start with Jerome. Um, let's, we'll talk a little bit. I don't want to go into what you did. Yes. Um, because Well, what 
they said he did. Exactly, uh, which we'll get to. Because to me, that's I don't want people. I don't want that shading right. any of the rest of the information. Right. Right. So what I what I want to know is. Um, so not what you were tried for, but let's talk about the initial phase. You you get arrested. What happens when you're arrested for uh, a crime of a serious nature? Because you, you eventually were sentenced to 22 years. Yes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the process of getting arrested in those first few days of incarceration? Well, I know when it initially starts they grab you and 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 not so much try to scare you at the beginning but they want to be your friend like hey if you tell us this and we're 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 make sure that nothing bad happens to you just make sure you tell us tell us this or tell us that so it's more about them trying to be your friend and to me that was manipulation i didn't know that then cuz i was so young sure but now I see you know, they just try to manipulate. It's just me. clear manipulation. Yeah. Richard, were you were you locked up? Twenty six years. Twenty six years. Okay, yes. so feel free to jump in at, and kind of confirm all of what he's saying as we go along the Absolutely. way. Absolutely. I mean, um, and, and what he's speaking of is the uh, psychological warfare mm-hmm. that uh, they begin with, and that's how it starts. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, um, you uh, talk about the capture. Um, it's like chasing a dog down, you know, um, uh, when you commit a crime and that's when you don't get caught immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or you may go and you may get out on bond, uh, and then you're, you know, wondering, okay, what's next? And, right. um, you know, how am I going to get out of this? And, and that worry for me, the big thing is the mental health issue that no one talks about. Mm-hmm. Um, Mental health is one of the biggest issues as far as um, incarceration is concerned because it, it it bothers you. It changes you as an individual. Sure. Um, it really doesn't matter what you've done. Um, uh, it's just amazing how they house everyone. They just throw everybody all together. And we're talking, you've got blind people. You've got people who have... Uh, prosthetics you have people who are mentally incapable of spelling or writing their name and they just throw them all together this is why that they have uh, the um the laws as far as um adults are not being housed with juveniles mm-hmm. um because they learned that they had to separate them because juveniles became victims well at the same at the same um token on that spectrum you have um people who are just not mentally capable of understanding what's going on when they close central state hospital, when they, uh, of course they just recently closed, um, LaRue Carter. Mm -hmm. Um, I think community uh, hospital is taking over LaRue Carter now. And so you have those people who turn into homeless people who then end up in the prison, uh, system. Of course, um, there's lots of money to be made because again, it's a warehousing of the people that, that quote unquote, we don't want. Right. So the throwaways. Right. So you you said you were 19. How old were you when you were initially arrested? <sighs> uh, initially I was oh, I was about 18. Okay. Yes. So you guys you guys are young, you, you know, people at 18, 19, hey, your brain isn't fully developed. Mm-hmm. You're in a room. I mean, did did either of you have a lawyer when you were initially interviewed by the police? No. Oh, never that. And and in my um uh, initial 
um, arrest, I was in um, the service. Mm -hmm. I was actually in the Navy at the time. Hmm. And um, I shot someone with my service revolver. Okay. So basically, it became a situation where uh, I had to go through not only uh, the state trial, but civil and all of that, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, uh, military, uh, and ended up getting an other than honorable discharge and then being thrown into the system. And Illinois is a different animal from Indiana. Sure. It is uh, a lot more intense, uh, and it is... Um, it was it was an experience. Sure, it was truly an experience. Um, um, the, my first um, few days there um, was devastating mm -hmm. uh, because I'm not from there, and so of course it's gang affiliated, and I wasn't part of their gangs, and so basically I was beaten mm -hmm. on a regular basis. Um, it toughened me up a whole lot. Because I realized that I was in a situation where you can't call your mom and you can't call, no, you know, there's nobody that's going to come and save you. Sure. The police are, you know, sometimes gang affiliated in Chicago, in Illinois. That's kind of how it works hmm. um, at that time, because uh, I don't know what it's like now. But this was back in the, I mean, I've been in prison in one of every one of the last five decades. Hmm. You know, in the 70s, I was in prison. In the 80s, I was in prison. In the 90s, I was in prison. Uh, 2000, 2010, and, you know, the first four years of this new decade. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's quite of an experience. Yeah. yeah, and I would think that, you know, if you've committed a crime that, that eventually carries such a sentence, that in and of itself is a traumatic experience. Yes. And then to go through the emotional man manipulation by the police is a, a traumatic experience. And then to go, uh, you know, to lose your freedom in that is a traumatic experience. You know, and so we'll kind of talk about the mental health uh, along the way. Because I would imagine you probably didn't have a lot of support in the first place. And, and I'm a huge advocate for the emotional life of the American male in this day and age is so pathetic and we set men up for failure in the first place and and showing emotion showing insecurity showing you know reaching out for help those are weaknesses and you can't be weak you know and then you go to a, a charged environment like that imagine that's you know you're dealing with a lot emotionally and then you go to a place where the it's it's Alpha as fuck. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's interesting that you use the word traumatic. Um, kind of, and here's kind of an overview. Um, think of the five senses. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, your eyes to see, nose, uh, taste, touch, hearing, touching. Um, usually those um, senses are utilized in order to um, measure your, 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 your well-being. How, it's how you experience life. Now think about it from the standpoint of someone who has uh, been through generational poverty, um, urban trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, define, life, define urban trauma. Well, urban trauma is basically um, traumatic experiences of I lost my dad. Um, you know, um, basically being in poverty, where I come from, financial status, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, the trauma of the types of mental health issues that you deal with um, at home. Dealing with drug addiction, dealing with, uh, dealing probably with alcoholism and drug addiction in very close quarters, and, if not your parents. And, and well, definitely your parents. Um, um, 
mom was an alcoholic, you know what I mean? These mm-hmm. type of things and, and you know, um, whether or not um, you were raised properly um, because at the same time, you know, even though mom was an alcoholic, you have to have some sympathy because she was doing the best that she could at the time of what she had to work with. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, you're being really raised by your older sibling who's knocking you upside the head or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So it, it's it's that urban trauma uh, plays a large role. Um, and um, when you throw in uh, the incarceration factor um, and usually trauma takes any one trauma takes about two years before yeah. you can actually overcome it and come around on the other side. I, I'm two years out from my divorce, and that's very <laughs> and much And still true. dealing with it. Absolutely, and so, yeah. and so imagine trauma layered upon trauma, layered upon trauma, layered upon trauma, and then now, you, now you're talking about the mental health aspect of mm-hmm. someone who has been incarcerated for 26 years. Personally, I can speak right. I can look right. I can act right. But I'm still broken. Mm-hmm. I'm very broken, and you may not be able to tell, but if you're around me a long enough period of time uh, on a regular basis, you'll start seeing like the record skips sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I overthink things because I'm always worried whether I'm going to make a bad decision that's mm-hmm. going to lead me back to prison. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so now, when you ask me a question, I'm like a deer in headlights because. I got to think about it. Part of part of going through a traumatic situation and going through the work to heal that trauma, part of what I'm going through and not dealing with it, half of what you've dealt with, uh, is just learning to trust your gut again. There you go. You know, so when you when you deal with when you grow up in a chaotic home, and I had I had good parents, but I had a chaotic home life, and that kind of that kind of disorients you, and you have to learn how to be an adult. You have to kind of parent yourself in some ways. Because of those those issues, and you don't you don't you, I totally identify with that because you don't know how to trust your gut, and so much of what we've seen in Rupert's kids and working with Rupert's kids, we talked with Rupert. So you've got twelve years old twelve year olds with tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt because their parents are just drug addicted deadbeats, mm-hmm. and so they're not they've never been taught how to. Uh, uh, they've never been taught any way to be a, a, a quote-unquote upstanding member of society. And if listener, if it asks, if it seems like I'm asking you to feel sorry for criminals, fuck yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I think you can't close yourself off to other human beings, even if they have done things that are are heinous. There's an impact on that individual because they're human too, dealing with the fallout of their choices. And there are situations that led up to those choices. It's like the Orlando shooter. We need to understand why the Orlando shooter did what the Orlando shooter did so that we can then fix our society, our culture, our government to lessen the, the instances of those mass shootings. When in... You know, in Indianapolis, we have about 100, 120 murders a year, and the majority of it is black-on-black crime. It is guys who are inside or have been in. Most of them have mug shots. Mm -hmm. You know, and so there clearly is some sort of problem that we need to deal with as as a matter of government policy, and it starts with us looking at, um, 
frankly, like the two of you as human beings who have gone through some shit and we need to understand what what is happening. So then it's not a matter of fixing it. It's a matter of taking away government policies that have caused certain codified uh, certain. Yeah. And certain socioeconomic conditions to incur. I mean, the war on drugs directly affected you. For instance, I I agree with you to a certain extent. Okay, um, and I think that uh, Jerome will understand what I'm about to say. Um, when you wake up uh, next to um, some people, you understand why there is a prison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are guys that there's a reason that they lock the door and throw away the key. Yeah. Sure, um, because there are some people who are just not, um, just cannot deal with society. Um, and, and basically, um, the type of heinous crimes that they commit, it's because there's something not right up here. Sure. Okay, up in their head. And so, um, you know, I, I say that to say that there are some people that the system, I understand why the system is the system, but I think that the system has now become more... Um, confinement and punishment as opposed to rehabilitation right um and i think that's where we've we got we've gotten lost is that they've taken college out of prisons they've taken um all of the vocational opportunities out of prison um now it's just a matter of you're locking people up and you've got people on bunks that used to be one level mm-hmm. they're now stacked three high hmm. because they can get thirty-one thousand per inmate Per year, mm. and in New York, you actually get sixty thousand per inmate per year. And so, when you start looking at that, we've become commodities, sure. uh, and not only commodities um, to be bought and sold, but then um, to be put on leashes once you're on probation or parole, because then you're wearing a bracelet and you are now farmed out to probation. You've got to pay fees. You've got to pay your drop fees. You've got to pay anger management fees. You've got to do all of this, but you're released with absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And so basically you are now in debt up to your eyeballs and you have nothing, you know. Very, very little chance of employment. Absolutely. Right. So, Daron, let's go back to, to when you're arrested. You're in uh, so you did you have a lawyer? No. Okay, so you had probably a public defender? The whole time. Okay. All right. So talk about the initial interview that you went through uh, in in uh, when you were brought in by the police. Well, when I initially went there, they were, like, extra nice to me because I was young. And and I asked them, do I need a lawyer? And they said, oh, no, we you're all right. Just talk to us and tell us what you know and everything's going to be all right. And we will let you go home. Mm-hmm. I'm young. I'm ready to go home. So sure. I'm ready. So they initially put me in a room for two hours, no water, no bathroom, and I'm just sitting there, just waiting on someone to come talk to me. So you're just sitting there isolated for two hours? Two hours. Okay. And so I decided I'm going to lay on the floor. I'm tired. It's 11 o'clock at night. I need to use the bathroom. They're not letting me. I almost went to the point where I was going to use the bathroom on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's how bad I needed to go. And so when they finally see me through the camera that I'm laying on the floor, they come in. Mm -hmm. And then one guy is sitting there and he's talking to me with a a audio cassette player in front of me. And the other guy, he's sitting there. He's not asking me any questions. He's just writing down, just writing down stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, everything I say is going to be on audio. So I'm, I'm all right. Sure. 
And then after they they get through interrogating me and telling me I did this and you know you did this and me I'm scared still like oh man they said I'm did it I did it but I know I didn't sure so I'm sitting there and then they decided it was over with and and they, and the guy who was just writing stuff just asked me to sign the paper I'm thinking okay I'm, I'm gonna sign it because everything I said is on audio so they end up walking out of the room. And coming back 30 minutes later and tell me I'm under arrest for, could I admit it to the crime? I'm like, whoa, when did I do that? And he said, uh, we have it right here on paper, so I'm reading it. And I'm like, oh, I did admit on this paper, but I know this is not what I said. Sure. <laughs> and so I said, okay, let me listen to the audio. And he, you will in court. Cuff up. I'm like, whoa. So I go, and then they, they allowed my sister to come in. Still young, so she they I'm crying like I didn't do this. I'm ready. Right, help me out, bail me out. And then they, you're not getting no bail. Sure, ever you're gonna be in prison for life. I'm like now I'm really scared, like for life. Cause I heard about prison. I don't know what what to expect when I get there. Had you been in trouble with the law at all before? Never before. Okay, never. And so they end up taking me to booking, and I went over there, and they was like extra mean to me. Me being young, I'm thinking they're mean. It probably, it, it probably was a process that they do to everybody. Mm-hmm. But to me, I'm thinking they're being mean. Like, boy, I want my mommy. <laughs> you know right, yeah. <laughs> and so they end up putting me in a single cell by myself. No one to talk to. They wouldn't let me use the phone, wouldn't let me do anything. So I sit in that cell for like four days until they initially uh, took me to court. And then that's when they said what I was charged with and telling me I had no bond and me see you in three months when we have a trial and gave me a public defender because I couldn't afford a lawyer sure for for that crime I couldn't so looking back on that moment uh you're you're in your 40s now yes um what would you I mean do you think you had the mental I mean, did you understand it? I mean, did you, you just, was it just a total fear at that moment? And that's why you, you signed the paper? I mean, why sign the paper? Like, I'm, I'm sitting here going, don't sign the paper. You don't talk to the cops. What are you yeah. doing? Because well, we have a different lens, though. Yeah. Sure, but I mean, that's what I'm asking him to explain his lens. Yeah. yeah. And with me, I'm thinking just, I'm just thinking that everything I said is going to be on this audio. So no matter what's on this paper, they're going to hear it on audio. Because they had it in front of me and it was going. And signing the paper might get you home. Yeah. I didn't think that far. I just thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we saw that when we talked about the make, when we did the Making a Murderer podcast. And, right. And they had Brendan Dassey and, you know, they asked him to sign and, and talk, you know, they, they led him through his confession. Sure. And they, you know, very similar situation. Yeah. They talked to him. They, they laid it out. And, you know, that kind of led him to what they needed to be enough. Mm-hmm. And, and you're three times smarter than Brendan Dassey. Oh, I mean, man. oh it's just not dude. even close. Yeah, yeah. Four, five, five, <laughs> ten. You know, it, and, and, and to me, I think if I wouldn't want to do it all over again, but if I had to do it again, I wouldn't sign that paper. Sure, I wouldn't talk to him, and I would ask for a lawyer like my sister told me to get. But me trying to be the guy just to right say I, I want to go home. This is what I know, and this is what I don't know. I hope you believe me so I can go home. Well, they didn't believe me. Sure. <laughs> right. So, I, I mean, were you just kind of acting in good faith? You, yes. You were, you were acting. If I act like the good guy here, yes. 
If I participate, yes. then they're going to believe me, mm-hmm. and it'll work out for me. Yes. Okay. So so you go, you wait the three months, and then what happens at trial? I go back to trial. And, I, mean, I, go, I go back to court, and they continued it, and I got like 20 continuances throughout. I was in Marion County for two years before I actually got oh, found wow. guilty. And so they, they just kept continuing it, and... And that, and then that's when my first public defender decided, oh no, I'm not taking this, so I get another one. And it's, I can go on and on about the new one, but he probably was worse than the first one. Mm-hmm. Where he came to me and said, "Well, I can get you a plea bargain." But I said, "I'm not guilty." He said, "But if you just take this four, you eight do four, you can get out. You're still young." But I said, "I'm not guilty." He said, well, you're not going to like the outcome. I'm like, but if you're supposed to be my lawyer, you're supposed to be trying to help me. Sure. Well, I'm not. I'm I'm here, and I can only do the best I can do. I, do, I knew then that I was in trouble. Yeah. So I was hoping, so I did all kind of paperwork to get a new lawyer, and, and the judge denied it, and so I'm stuck with this one lawyer. So in my mind, he's going to be mad at me forever because I wanted him off my case. Sure. And it showed he was mad at me for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> So is is it very uh, is it very common for uh, for a public defender just to want to plead out because they're so overworked? Well, that's why they're called public pretenders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what we call them. Okay, um, and and basically, um, when you're new to the system, mm-hmm. you don't really understand what's going on. You don't understand that this person that they have appointed you. Uh, actually goes out and has lunch yes. with the prosecutor. Sure. They're yeah. all they're you know, all on the same they're all, team. They're on the same team. And so you don't understand that. And so when he starts pushing you as far as with the questions uh, leading you to uh towards a plea bargain. Plea bargain makes it easier. Plea bargain gets you out of the way, gets you out of the system one less cog close, in the system. Close that case. There you go. Close it out. Um and this is you also have to understand that this is how um, public defenders get their track record so that they can move forward to be, become prosecutors. Sure, um, uh, this is just their their this is their their seasoning ground. This is mm-hmm. you know where they get their uh, uh, their um, um, their stripes. Sure, uh, and and at our expense um, because we're law we don't we don't know the law. You know when you, when you first go in, of course, having spent. Um, five years in the law library afterwards of course now i you know i, I can run circles around a public defender because yeah. it's like it's like Daron said before it's real easy to get in but it's real hard it, it to get is out. so yeah. uh, and i you know i actually have gotten out a lot of guys mm-hmm. but could never get myself out and that's mm-hmm. that's one of the big issues as well you know um public defenders if they're going to be appointed by the state there should be something that says that just like uh, a separation of church and state, there should be a separation. They're, they shouldn't be on the same team mm-hmm. as the person that's prosecuting me. Right. You know, I mean, it's just not it's just not justice. You know, um, did you have a public defender every single time? Okay. And to kind of add to what, what he's saying, I think most people don't understand that a public pretender Defender has maybe a hundred people on their docket on their case law, absolutely. Yeah, and so when do they actually have time to study a case or try to defend someone with a serious case when they're still dealing with these other 99 other people to have court dates around the same time, right? So you stand you, no chance. You may see them, you may see your 
um, public defender um, in in a in a serious felony case, mm-hmm. you may see him possibly four times in the span of maybe a nine month period. Oh wow! Uh, oh, wow. And and that, and then you're then now you're saying and and at the end they're saying. Okay, are we taking this to trial? Mm-hmm. Are you going to take this plea bargain? Or you know, we've we've come with you, and every time they come a little bit lower. Of course, we've learned that you have three shots. Mm-hmm. You know, you get three times. Um, they'll come to you with a plea bargain. Mm-hmm. Never take the first one. No. You know, um, the second one. The second one always sounds really, really good. Mm-hmm. And usually, that's what most people take is the second one. Um, but then there are those who are like. Maybe Darone that actually did not do something, and then they're like, no, no, no. Then they'll come again the third time. Mm-hmm. After the third time, they're taking you to trial because right. now to them they feel like you're a waste of their time. Right. Okay. So yeah, it's it's a it's a game. And I know in, in my instinct where the like mine, I didn't go to trial at the end of the, at the end of it. I ended up signing a forty five year plea bargain, but I only signed it because they just kept saying, "Well, you're going to get eighty five years right. if you go to trial." Right. And we're going to make sure you never get out. And I'm still young, so I'm thinking, I do want to get out. Sure. And so I'm sitting in the back room, and I'm, I'm hesitating. I don't want to do it. I didn't do this. I want to go to trial, but it doesn't look good for me. Right. And so they end up sending my sister back there crying, please take this plea bargain. We will see you again. Against you. I'm like, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. Then they send my mom back. Please take this plea bargain. I don't want to see you. I want to be able to see you walk out of there. Yeah. Still don't want to. Then a prosecutor comes. Well, if you take this plea bargain, I'll, I will go in there and I will say just 45 years and you won't get any more than that. But if you don't, you're going to get 85 years. I'm like, oh, I still don't want to do this. And then a lawyer comes. Man, if you don't take this plea bargain, man, you're going to die in prison. Well, that scared me. <laughs> yeah. So I said, okay, let me sign it. <laughs> yeah. So... Is this a, I mean, using the family against you, is that very common? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, because you also have to understand that they have no idea about the law either. And so they they think that they're doing you a service. They think that they're helping Mm -hmm. because they've convinced them that if he takes this, and then you also have to think of... um, before what was it last year july 1st when mm-hmm. the new law came into effect mm-hmm. what you were doing only half of your time and yeah. so if they're saying 45 years then that's they're talking 22 and a half yeah. um you know and so then they're breaking it down like that to make you say hey look you're, you're gonna still be in your 40s when yeah, you get yeah, out you yeah. know what or, i mean or or or, they, or they, they're sorry go ahead or they, they'll come and say oh when you you get to 22 years you only and then you go in there and get all these time cuts right you only have to do 18 years right. and you'll still be young with at that time that wasn't interesting to me instead of 85 right. years 45 <laughs> right. and all 80. i do is 18 years right so of course i'm gonna jump on it i still didn't do it but i don't stand a chance yeah. because they telling me my lawyer saying you're going to get it. he's not saying oh i'm going to fight so you don't get this but you're going to get this if you go to trial where are you at emotionally at that point a wreck <laughs> Because I don't know what to do. I don't, I mean, I want to, I don't want to go to get 85 years, but I also don't want to do 45 years when I'm, no, I didn't do anything. Right. But then the sending of the family in and the prosecutors come in personally, and I, I never knew a prosecutor to personally come talk to you. And then she's coming in and then my lawyer coming in and not giving me any hope. I felt like I didn't have a chance, so I just signed 
45 years. Right. Didn't want to, and I wish I never did. I'd rather have took that chance with the 85 years and tell my side instead of taking the 45 years saying, yes, I did this. Mm-hmm. And I think that hurt me more than anything. <clears throat> How common is your story as you talk to other guys who have been through the system? A lot. It, 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 Major- a, majority? A lot of people, yeah. A lot of people can can relate but then you can almost tell who's who's just talking just to be talking, and you and just want to say, "Oh, I went through that too." But did you really go through it? Yeah. I, have either of you seen The Wire on yes. HBO? Yeah. Yes. I mean, is that for for I think most of our listeners that's easily accessible. Mm-hmm. And as you guys talk about this, man, the the. This function of bureaucracy, the way that the cops just don't take somebody who's sitting in the box seriously, mm-hmm. they're just another number on the board, it's just another number for the prosecutor, it's just a number, I mean, did you see in that reality, that TV show, I mean, does that kind of, that, that kind of lack of systemic empathy... Yes, and and you know, um, The Wire was one of the few shows that got a lot of it right. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of there's a lot of shows out there that um, would lead the public to think that something completely false. Sure, um, you know, um, like Jerome was sharing as far as with his the the parents. You know, you also have to consider you don't want to let them down. Yeah. And so, you know, these are the people who are going to be sending you commissary money. These mm-hmm. are the people that are going to still be trying to extend it, taking care of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, what they have done is not only are they locking us up, they're basically locking our families up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When you start looking at Kefi and pin products mm-hmm. and all the extended things that um, go along with our being incarcerated, um, the way they are gouging um, our family members who are already paying taxes to house us then have to pay 300% markups on the telephone, yeah. the yeah. J-Pay. Mm-hmm. You know, then they're trying to send us money. They're basically – and then when we, when we get incarcerated and we're into the system, everything costs so much. It's almost an incentive for the families to move away from you. Mm-hmm after you get incarcerated and kind of leave you mm. because you're putting a stress and a strain on the family structure and you're sure. not even there. Right. Yeah. You know? And so it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a sad state of affairs. Um, uh, but like I said, you know, the wire kind of, uh, uh, is one of the few shows that, um, I would say, um, kind of got it right. Um, a little, um, there will never be, be a way unless you walk in the shoes mm-hmm. sure. yeah. to really know um, because it devastates you as a human being. Yeah. Um, your trust that, you know, your, your, your arrows are off. Everything get, gets thrown off because when you're incarcerated, you become a different person. You have to, if you're going to come home, mm-hmm. um, you have to live differently. Um, what a lot of people don't understand um, especially if you go in and you're addicted to drugs, mm-hmm. okay? People think, oh, well, they're going to prison. It's all right. There are more drugs in prison than there are out here, yes. mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
Uh, there are cell phones in prison. There are mm-hmm. everything that you can get. Here's, a, here, here's an analogy. And this is what I, I share with people sometimes to really try to get it across to them what's, what, what we're really dealing with when we're incarcerated. Think of the worst ghetto that you can think of. Multiply it by 10. Because you have to think, most of the ghettos are where they're locking people up. Mm-hmm. And so they're taking the worst of the worst out of the ghetto. Where are they putting them? In prison. So now they're, they've created a ghetto that you can't get away from. You can't escape because they're locked in there with you. And so when you have the, the worst of the worst, I mean, it becomes lying, cheating, stealing, racing, raping, prostitution. All of that goes on in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just, uh, it's scary. It's scary. Yeah, so you're just swimming in this soup of awfulness. Yes. And that's where we're talking trauma. Yeah. On a daily basis, trauma. Everything you hear, trauma. Everything you see, trauma. Everything, you know, a lot of people don't talk about the food. Hmm. The food is soy-based products. All you have to do is Google the harmful effects of soy products. Yeah. And I shared this the other day with someone. You give a person five years, a five-year sentence for shoplifting or something, you're actually giving them a death sentence mm-hmm. because of what they're going to be eating for five years. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm already feeling the effects of my diabetes. I have gastrointestinal uh, issues going on. Um, you know, we've eaten this food for a really, really long time, and it, it bothers you. It messes with you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's just a lot going on, and there are a lot of there are a lot of underlying problems that never get brought to the surface. And it's like, oh, you did the crime, so just be quiet. You're crying. You're, you know, what I mean, you, yeah. you deserve yeah. to be where yeah. you are. If you if, if you didn't want to get there, then you shouldn't have done what you did. Exactly. Right. right. But they forget about those people who. Um, after 25 years, DNA proves that they were innocent the yeah. entire time. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just a lot of, um, true story. My mom, we, uh, as African-Americans, we put our dog on a leash and leave him out in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and this is, and this is years ago. Okay. Um, but, of course, the culture for animals has changed a lot. Uh, they've become part of the family now. Sure. Whereas in years past, they were just out in the backyard chained up. Right. Well, the neighbor called. My, 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 my mother had brought my daughter, I mean my sister, a dog. And my sister moved out of the house. So she left the dog with my mom. The dog pulled its, on its uh, um, collar. Oh. To where it started bleeding. Well, the neighbor called animal control, cruelty, animal cruelty. Sure. And do you know that they put my mother through the system, um, charged her with animal cruelty, gave her a number because she was afraid because, of course, I was incarcerated at the time. And I kept telling her, don't, you know, don't sign anything. Don't, you know, yeah. just they're yeah. trying to scare you. But she was afraid. She was an old lady you know, then. And and so she was terrified. We all have this notion, uh, and that's what we talk a lot about on the show, is 
we're given certain scripts in society, you know, the government is always good, always right. trust the police. Right. Right. You know, the, the right. person that gets the government paycheck is somebody you can trust. You can, right. you know... The, Untrue. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we, yeah. Untrue. You know... You don't have to convince us, we know. You don't... Yeah. You, you don't... You want to be the good citizen, so you don't want to get in trouble. So if you just do what Daron did and you work with them, just then it'll, do what they say. It'll yeah. be okay. Right. It'll yeah. be okay. Right. Right. But the state is your enemy. Yes. And unfortunately, we have to think that way when you're in that situation. So your mom goes through the system, and she's trying to to, to do be, the right thing to be a good yeah. citizen. And she ended up um, um, getting uh, signing a plea bargain just so that she wouldn't go to jail. But they put her on probation. Which means she had to pee in a cup yep. with somebody standing there watching her. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's an old lady. Right. You know what I mean? She didn't do anything wrong. The dog didn't even belong to her. It was just in her yard. I mean, it's just amazing. She's she's lived with dignity her whole life, and then it's robbed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's just really sad that um, there are so many laws that are being brought onto the books you know, if you look this stuff up, you'd be amazed. It's almost laughable, the type of things that are considered a crime now, um, just so that you can send people to jail. Sure. Yeah. And get that $30,000 per person, fill sure. that bed, you know what I mean? And like you say, it's become a business. It's big business. It's just simply big business. You know, one of the things that when we were in D.C. that I learned that never in a million years would would have occurred to me, but the largest demographic in growth in prison is women. And yes. they're being treated terribly. And yes. they're being treated terribly. Rural white women, to be Just, specific. Yeah. 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 But so much of it comes from the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Yep. These are mothers. Mm-hmm. These are sisters. These are wives. These are girlfriends. And they are going through a the same things that that you guys went through, but they're supposed to be the rock in our families. See now, you you, you he he boy, you hit it right. You hit the nail on the head that time. If you take a man and you lock him up, eh, you got a bunch of deadbeat dads. You know what I mean? The man's not in the family structure, right. so the mom steps in mm-hmm. to keep the family together. Yeah. Right. You take the woman. And you take her out, the you, family is destroyed you've broken yeah. that instantly. Yeah. Nobody else is coming to the rescue. Well, and can and you imagine what that's doing now for the next generation as we break that oh, family? Man. Yeah. Because we've, we've seen what's happened to the destruction of the family as we've, we've locked up men, Absolutely particularly fathers. black men, Absolutely. Um, for the last 40 years, specifically with regard to what my friend Nick Sarwark and I have become to call the racist war on drugs Mm -hmm. it is not separable the racist war on drugs and now it's going beyond what it has been for the last 45 years and it it's already doing terrible things to the black community it is breaking up those families now what we're seeing is that they're being completely destroyed as women are coming in sure and you know the beauty of Hollywood and pop culture is that we at least get an opportunity to see. And for those of you who have had an opportunity to watch uh, Orange is the New Black, um, you know, there's a yes, it's dramatized. Yes, it's it's going to be made Hollywood so that it's entertaining. entertaining. Yeah. Yes. But yeah. there are so many truths. And this season specifically, the most recent season, 
which I just finished uh, right before we went to D.C. Um, when you see what happens when they... Don't tell. I'm on episode oh, nine. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> there, there, there are some people that get out. Right? Okay. And when you see what they go back to and the destruction right. that has happened to their family, the lives that they had before, the relationships that they had before, the, the things that you and I take for granted, um, going out to eat was devastating to one of the people that left because it, it, it was completely foreign. She had lost that part of her life, but we're doing that systematically throughout this country for real as we overcriminalize we are locking up even when the laws aren't they aren't breaking the laws yeah they're just associated with the kingpins right that or was one of the, the things it was the they were the time. girlfriends they were the wives right. well, they were the in episode the hanging fruit in yeah. episode 91 of this podcast Rachel's story where oh. we talk about the privatization of the Horizon uh, is the uh, the folks who were contracted to take care of the healthcare system in Indiana prisons. And she had a very uh, difficult blood disorder that was not treated, and she ended up dying. She went to prison for 16 years for selling, like, four Oxycontins. You know, and, and if you listen to Embedded, Embedded is a podcast, and one of their first episodes was on the, the, drug, uh, the drug epidemic, the HIV epidemic in southern Indiana in, a, in, a, in Aurora, Indiana. And it's one of the people featured was a nurse. Here's a middle class white woman who had a steady job, who had a back, who had back pains, went and got back pain pills, you know, and had surgery, had the back surgery, got it. The same ones they gave me when I had surgery. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's so easy. I, I went through some stuff recently and I called in and I got a very powerful substance, you know. There was no. I called the doctor. I said, "Hey, I'm feeling this. Okay, here's this really powerful drug that's easily mm -hmm. addictive. Never talked to him directly, you know. And like, fortunately, I I was just like, okay, I'm not. I have an addictive personality. I'm going to set this aside. We're not going to get a refill on this, you know. But it's just so easy. It's like candy, and then and then it becomes it just it snowballs. So if you think that it's just a black problem, it is. An everybody problem because at any yeah. given moment in society today, anyone at any rung of the socioeconomic ladder, any any race, color, creed can be caught up in the system. Mm -hmm. You know, just like your mom, who is somebody who who lived their entire life doing their best to be a good citizen, is from a from a different culture than their neighbor, and then they are sent and. Six months robbed of their dignity. Absolutely. You know? Uh, so you were, you were convicted. Yes. And you were sentenced. Mm -hmm. So what is the next step? You, you, just, you, you just get on a bus and you go to... No, they, they kind of make you wait a little bit more. And then, I mean, sit in Marion County Jail more now. And mm -hmm. you're already miserable because you were there two years. And that may be a little worse than prison. Sure. And so I'm sitting there, and then they finally call my name at 3 o'clock in the morning. Why is jail worse than prison? Because you have no idea of what's going on. Mm -hmm. You're just sitting there in jail. In jail, you don't have the freedom 
like you do in prison where you can go to recreation, you can go to a chow hall. That routine. Mm-hmm. You know wow. what I'm saying? Where in jail, it's just you, you got to stay in this cell and they bring the food to you. Gotcha. If you get up early in the morning, you might can go have some recreation. Right. And you see people going home, going, getting bailed out, and you're just sitting there. It, it's a, just a total, so it's a totally different, different environment than yeah. prison. Yeah. And so, so once then, and then, and then I end up going to a place called RDC, and that's where they determine what prison you're fit for. Mm-hmm. They ask you what prisons you want to go to, and to me, I don't want to go to none of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, and I don't know nothing about none of them, so just send me where you think I'm supposed to right. go. So they end up sending me to Pendleton Correctional Facility, but it was called Indiana Reformatory then mm-hmm. for younger people, right. so they say. So, because you're going to be reformed, so they say. Right. So I thought I would too. So I got there, and then that becomes a different story. So, so you go, you arrive, mm-hmm. and you think, all right, well, I'm going to go be reformed. And yeah. what, what, what were your expectations? To go in there, to go get all the schooling I can get. To go mm-hmm. there and learn that these that, that the officers are going to try to help me get out. They were actually trying to help me stay in. Mm. And, and you and then, but I, I wasn't surprised because there's two officers that got me put in here under false. Yeah. So your your expectation is that this is going to be you know you you're you're trying to make the best of a bad situation. Yes. And you're going to use this as a positive. You yes. get there and then it's defeating. It's defeating until I woke up one day and said I'll do it by myself. Okay. And then that's where it all changed for me because. I imagine that's just so you you're on your own no matter what. Yes. It's just yeah. you, which is has to be a devastating feeling. And it is, especially being so young, you just want to go in there and meet a friend. Yeah. Because you don't have anybody. Yeah. And but all the friends there are all negative. They all want you to join a gang. They all want you to join some Muslim or church group. They all want you to be gay or you see, they, they, everybody has a purpose of wanting to be your friend there. Right. You may meet real good friends there, but nine times out of ten, you're not going to. Being, being fresh there. Now, sure. As you go on and on and on, that's when you develop friend, real good friendships. So, you know, explain what it's like to be fresh, quote unquote. I mean, looking back, I mean... Huh. The, the, when it, it, there's that famous scene in Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. where you know fresh fish, fresh, where they're all yes. kind of fucking with the inmates, and, and that is, happens. Is that does that? And that happens. And it happens in more ways than you want it to happen. Mm-hmm. But you have to be the. And at then I didn't know what to do. So who do I run to? Yeah. So then I go to my room and cry. Oh man, I can't do this. Or I call home, mom, fine, get me the best lawyer you can, or sister, get me whatever you can. I can't do this. They're going to take over me in here. Right. So is it physical? Is it wh- what kind it, of... It never became physical, but they wanted it to be. Right. They were... It was It was as much mental manipulation yes. as the police. Yes. It's, okay. It's always mental. Yeah. Right. It's always mental. Um, you know... You have to realize, too, that when you're first um, um, processed, that's the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that's where um, the mental mind games start. But you have to understand, once you are sentenced and convicted and you're on your way to prison, then when you arrive, you are 
your peers are more dangerous mm-hmm. than the officers now mm-hmm. because they have a reason. They have, um, um, like he said, there. You know, there's always something behind. Um, would you like some of this, or yes. can I help you with this? Or yes. and, and so that's how they teach you not to trust anyone, mm-hmm. because once you find out what it, what the uh, ultimate goal truly is, then you're like, oh man, really? You know, I, I, here I had a little hope, yeah, and that's the thing; it robs yeah. you of hope. It 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 just takes your hope; it snatches it right away. How many you. times do you have to get fucked over before? Because I'm sure you're not handed a prison manual saying no, there, you know, no. How many times do you have to get fucked over? How long does it take before you really get it? Quite a few, because when you when you first get there. You're looking for a friend. Mm-hmm. You're looking for someone that, you know, and then you find out, really? You know, that's what you really own? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It might be some gay mess. Mm-hmm. It might be something that, oh, well, I just wanted you to, to steal your blanket. Yeah. You know, th- these these small things, trivial things that people don't consider things that matter, like your washcloth, your blanket. These are the things that are taken from you. Mm-hmm. When you first come in, because when you're new, you don't know that you really need this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's what they gave you. But these, the, the, the well-seasoned offenders know that, oh, that little bar of hotel soap that they give you to wash with, that's not enough. I don't have any money on commissary, so I'm going to take yours. You know, um, you become the victim of so many things. Mm-hmm. And it's like, really? Mentally, you are traumatized, mm-hmm. truly. And, um, and until and to me the people who have it the worst and i was in that category is when you don't have family out here so now you're in there struggling you're by yourself and no one's helping you and you me, and, meaning your family just wasn't able to send money no, they weren't no. able to come just be that support. Yes. yeah and i might like at the beginning of it they were coming around mm-hmm. but then as time go after two years, like out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. So right. they just twinkled off a little bit. So now you're there by yourself. And the, I call them predators in there. They see, oh, he doesn't have no visitors. He's not getting no mail. We can't get him. Mm. Because they've just been conditioned. They've picked up the patterns mm-hmm. that somebody who's lost contact with yes. those loved ones mm-hmm. that has become isolated. Anytime in mental health... If somebody is isolating, if somebody is isolated, they're more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And it is if if you have friends, you know, Chloe and I chat all the time, and then all of a sudden Chloe just disappears. Chloe's in trouble, you know. If it, 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 it's a person just stops showing up to events, you know, that friend's in trouble. It's it's the same sort of thing. I mean, any kind of isolation because. Humans fundamentally are social animals. We are yes. social creatures. Absolutely. And we need community and story as much as we need food, water, and air. Yeah. And so, so yeah, it, it, I, I get that. It, it, once they see you get isolated and withdrawn, mm-hmm. then you become more vulnerable. Yeah. And, and I will point out, I had the opportunity to um, talk to a guy, some author, I think his name was like Alan Pendergast or something like that at Ball State a couple of years ago. And he did interviews at the penitentiary in uh, Colorado. That's like the worst of the worst. Like that's where the Unabomber bomber was held. Yeah. Boston bomber. And he pointed out that in all of his interviews and everywhere that he went, that you are more likely to die as a prisoner in solitary confinement mm-hmm. than any other part 
of any prison, mainly because of the manipulation, because Mm -hmm. you don't know what time it is, because Mm -hmm. you don't get to go outside. Um, And you, you know, you're deprived of that social interaction. And if you don't have that for, you know, it might be two weeks, but you don't know that. And that's how prisoners die. You know, Um, well, and I saw a similar documentary where um, I think it was with Laura Ling, but you can see the camera, you've got all these cells and kind of like what you said, you're able to get whatever you want in prison and you can see razor blades on the floor mm-hmm. going to each one. And they're all, I mean, cutting themselves because mm-hmm. they just have nothing to live for or mm. hope for, you know, were either of you in solitary confinement at any point? Three years, Th- three years you were in solitary confinement. Yeah. What is you that were... like? Well, um, in, in 86, they had the, um, the riots at Pendleton, mm-hmm. um, wholeheartedly participated um, <laughs> and uh you know um and when they came in um they they signaled out quite a few people um john cole trotter um yeah, yeah um got like 125 years extra for a lot of the things because we we took guards hostage the whole shot um which is why they gave me so much time in the hole um but in the hole it's uh another traumatic experience um you're you're locked down for 23 hours um you get an hour well half an hour for a yard and half an hour for your shower and the showers are every two days and then the next day you get a shower Mm. uh it's not every day you know it's not like you know uh and and also you have to understand this is the 80s so things were different um, there, there weren't TVs yeah. in the eighties, you know what I mean? In the eighties, mm-hmm. there was a TV in the gym. That was it. You know what I mean? You know, now you've got TVs in your cells and all this type of stuff. Really? It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't like that. Um, uh, it was more raw. Um, prisons have progressed. They learn, um, in the seventies, uh, in order to maintain control, they had um, electric shock therapy. They would put the electrodes on you and shock you. Well, in the 80s, it became Thorazine. In the 90s, um, it was a new drug. You know, they, they've just got more advanced into... Now, tell me if I'm telling the truth now, the child line is shorter than the med line. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, the med lines are just wrapped around everybody's on something to try to forget mm-hmm. that they're doing time. And mm. so... so Like Xanax, Clonopin, uh, like the, SSRIs, like uh, Lexapro, that kind of thing? Or the things that they could not... now, And, uh, and then th- to consider someone who was addicted to drugs when they first when they came in. Mm-hmm. So now they're going through these withdrawals. They can get the illegal drugs... But why get illegal drugs if you can get some drugs that you can just go to? Like Suboxone. Exactly. Right. So, exactly. Like, not, not methadone, but Suboxone is an opiate blocker that... Right. That takes you, supposedly take you off of heroin. Right. right. Like, if you're going through heroin withdrawals, you take a Suboxone, it's, it's immediate, it ends it. But the problem is it's addicting, too. And Suboxone mm-hmm. became a lot worse than the heroin addiction in prison. Suboxone right. was the thing because you could get so much of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guards can get so much of it in. And, you, and then, too, what we haven't talked about is the fact that um, our captors, the officers who work in the institutions, are working for pennies 
okay? Nowadays, you don't even have to pass the physical. There used to be back in the day, you had to pass a physical. You had to, you know, be strong enough, you know, sure. to deal with the offenders. Now, you've got old people. It's like babysitting, you know what yeah. I mean? And so, um, if you're going to tell me that I can make... I can make $800 off of a $15 cell phone mm -hmm. and you're only paying me $11 an hour. You think I'm not going to smuggle a cell phone in there? Well, yeah. And that's what we talk about on the show all the time. It's incentives. Yes. It, it, the, the problem with government is that you create perverse incentives. It isn't that people who work for the government generally are bad people. Right. It's just human nature. When you design a set of incentives, like what you're speaking of, you're going to turn somebody who is a decent person into, into somebody who is a bad one. Yes. In episode 91, where we talk about the death of my friend Woody's daughter, Rachel, a hundred people saw that girl dying for three months, and nobody said shit. Mm. And it was because the incentive would have meant losing their job. It was the norm. Oh, right. Well, oh, well. Yeah. So she's an inmate anyways. Right. Turn a blind eye. Right. Yep. How do you get through three years of solitary confinement Men mentally, emotionally, Well, basically, you and, – and Daron touched on it a, a little. After a while, you stop looking for things in other people. Mm -hmm. And you start looking – those three years changed my life and because I got so in touch with me. I got, you get so in touch with – who you are as an individual and you start reflecting and you start seeing how strong you were, mm -hmm. how strong you are to simply still be alive after so, so many things that you've gone through. Um, and it becomes a healing process. Uh, and, and then uh, you also in solitary, you realize who your friends are because just because you're in solitary doesn't mean that people can't, contact you mm -hmm. and when i say contact you i'm talking about other offenders mm -hmm. okay um of course there's the you know the, the line to pull yeah. the cigarettes up and mm -hmm. all of that you know there's still illegal stuff going on even in solitary yeah. right yeah so but you begin to realize that um the guy that you went out there to help on the yard when they were beating him up he's out there you know and you're you're in here mm -hmm. you're taking a rap for him and they don't care. You know what I mean? And, and it just, it's a reality check. It, it, it truly is a truly gut reality check. And you begin to, to start reflecting on what's important in life. Um, you wake up every day and you're listening. And uh, there were a couple of guys who had been, um, because you have to understand in the 80s, there was no time limit on how long you could be. Um, in solitary confinement. Now the laws have changed where you can only keep them for so long because they've realized that for some people, it tips you over the edge. It drives you crazy when you can't communicate with other people because as Chris said earlier, we are social animals. And so to deprive us of that connection and that contact is, is, is criminal in itself. Yeah. So what are... Man, I don't want to dive into you know, we've kind of touched on some of the generalities of life inside, but I want to jump into some specifics. Maybe not what happened to you personally, but what are some specific things 
that you see happening that are regular. Not, I'm not talking about like the worst thing that you saw, mm-hmm. uh, even if it is that, but regular things that if it were happening on the street in a Walmart, in a Target, people would be appalled, but it is every single day happening inside of, of a prison. I mean, are there things like that, or is it more controlled, and it and it isn't as... Because I think to somebody who's never been through the system or, you know, has lived their only frame of reference as movies, it's like, oh, it must just be wild in there. I mean, there are people just getting stabbed every day. There's shankings, like, left and right. I mean... There are. <laughs> I mean, so is that... Help shade the perception of people like us who have just don't have experience with that. What are What are the regular things that happen that are just uncivilized like it's just not acceptable but it's regular life for you you want to start yeah i'll take that (laughs) um i i think that the one thing that is is um for me the things that i see um are is the victimization Mm -hmm. uh of individuals who can't really fend for themselves or they are the ones who have been targeted as the weaklings right um they are taken advantage of every single day Every single day. And there's no one that they can turn to because if you tell the officers, you're going to get worse. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And the officers really don't care. And at the end of the day, the officers will end up telling other individuals that you told. And so it's a never ending circle of bad for you. And as a, as an empathetic caring human being, you look at that and you go, god damn, I wish I could help that guy. And, and, and even, and, and you better not, You know, it it just depends on who you are because that's something that we also haven't touched on mm-hmm. is that there are hierarchies in prison. In prison. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, you have those who are the victims um, that everybody knows they're victims, mm-hmm. and those are the ones. That, Shut up! Give me your stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, be qu- those are the new guys that know nothing about nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have your seasoned people. Then you have your crazy people who mm-hmm. are mentally just off. Um, and you can tell that they're mentally off because they're just not all there. Um, like I said, you have those who have prosthetics. You have <laughs> one thing that I found interesting, and, and like I said, humans are just the human life is just interesting to me. Um, what is a blind guy doing in prison? Mm-hmm. I'm talking blind to where they have a cane and they cannot see anything. Hmm. You these are these are people that you would never think that are being locked up. And you know, I asked the guy, you know, man, what did you do that you're blind and you're in prison? You know what I mean? Of course, that doesn't stop you from writing bad checks and you know doing whatever. You know what I mean? But you would never think that um, the type of situations that you find in prison that you would find there. Um, another thing that. Uh, when you say regular is the fighting there's always going to be a fight i mean there's a fight somewhere in the prison every single day um the whole time you're there and and of course we hear about it after the fact um there may be a fight in the chow hall there may be well you know so-and-so got stabbed yesterday or you know you always hear it um the prison has its own new system um come on and to me, I think if it's more like if it, if if this was getting done out here, I mean, society would be like, no, no, no. Yeah. And there's bullying. Oh, yes. Complete bullying, and, and it it doesn't have to be bullying that I'm I'm beating you up every day. It's just the guards they bully the inmates, mm-hmm. and then the inmates get 
and feelings, so now they want to bully somebody. Else. Yes. Yeah. And then the person that's getting bullied by the offender, he wants to bully on the weaker person. So it, it's just a trickle-down effect where it's nothing but bullying. And the there. administration bullies the guards. Yes. Yeah, any, anytime you feel a sense of rage or helplessness, you want to take the – and you don't have coping skills. You want yeah. to take that out on somebody. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's. I think everybody goes through that. I'm going through a situation where I'm pissed off, and mm-hmm. I just like part of me. There's somebody at work. I just want to tell the fuck off. Yeah. You know, and I want to punch somebody. You have those emotions inside you, and then you're in an an environment where that's almost encouraged, right? Well, and but the scary part, scary part about that is because um, with the, the the 26 years that I did. It wasn't all at one time. And sure. So I was in and out, in and out, in and out. But I always got large chunks of time for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you say you want to punch someone, you know, it's like, man, I just it, now when I the problem is in there, you can, you know, you can just what did you what did you say to me? This is where they talk about um disrespect yeah and that's a big issue for people who are incarcerated you they're not going to disrespect it's a culture of respect it's it's the last dignity that i have left so that's what i'm not going to let you do yeah yeah. um and so but in that vein um because i can lash out and i can strike you and not really get in trouble a lot of trouble you know a lot of times a guard will turn their head Mm -hmm. with somebody that they feel like Oh, you, you kind of deserve that, so I'm going to let this happen. <laughs> um, but the thing is, is when you come home and someone says something to you. Yeah. I have no, my barometer has changed now because that was part of my problem is that I would get out and I would come home and I couldn't handle being out here because I was used to slapping people for things that they would say to me. And be like, yeah, well, that's what you're spo- that's what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, it's, it's, um, PTS- taught- it's PTSD essentially. Well, yeah. it, it, what I call it is post-traumatic um, prison disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I call it, and because uh, there needs to be a label for it for people who have been incarcerated for long periods of time, and then they come home, and all of a sudden you're expecting them to just fall and back in line. And I mean, when I came home. You have to also understand technology passed me by. Yeah. Okay. And so when I came home and I was listening to some music and I was like, somebody turned the radio off and they said, stupid, that's your phone. (laughs) I put a ringtone on there for you. (laughs) So when you hear that music, it's your phone ringing. And I'm like, really? Yeah. (laughs) You know, so I mean, I was was completely lost. I I went to, uh, when I worked at a radio station here in town, Abdul and I went out and did a show at the farm. Ah, in Putnam County, yeah, Putnamville, and that is like a uh, like a place to. It's a reentry location. It's the farm. You go out there and you learn about you know. And they were just you know for guys who'd been in there for twenty years. You go in in nineteen ninety two, and you come out in two thousand and two. You think about the difference. You know what's a fresh idea card? Mm-hmm. Right. What is you know what is the internet? Yes. What yeah, is we had those conversations? Yeah. You know, because it it is, and it's it's a lot of like what I I live in a location where we have the world's largest population of Chin outside of Burma, mm. here in this area. Right. So there are a ton of Burmese people who are refugees fleeing their country because of religious persecution. They walk off the plains with what they own, mm. and they come here and they get coupons from Bed Bath and Beyond, and they go to Bed Bath and Beyond to get their free pillow because they think that might be what that might be. Mm. You know, they stand and they just don't. 
it's like a foreign world. I mean, so when you get out, I mean, it, it, how foreign is what, what year did you go in? In 96. 96, and then you came out what year? 2014. 2014. Mm-hmm. I mean, 96 to 2014, there's a, a lot that is different. A lot. I mean, what were the biggest <laughs> adjustments that you, you had? Just, just getting out, just just knowing where, just knowing anything. Mm-hmm. I just, I didn't know what a cell phone was. Maybe I, I seen it in prison, maybe picked it up in prison, but I still didn't know how to operate it. Sure. Mm-hmm. So when I get out here and I get me a cell phone, I'm like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. I get on the internet, what do I do? I mean, what do I look for? And I still have trouble with it today. And I've right. been out almost two years. Well, I've been out two years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been out two years. And it's just, just that and just still trying to adjust. And I still have that, as he called it, post-traumatic after prison. I still have that because sometimes I still try to find out who I am and what my place is. Yeah. Because... Uh, dealing with prison so long, I adjusted to that, and that was my life. I had free everything; it was free, free bed, free food, right. free all that. And so now I get out here and I have bills, responsibilities, and I, I still don't know how to deal with it. I'm dealing with it, but it like hurts my heart when I had to give up four hundred dollars and fifty. You know what I'm saying for yeah. rent? I'm like, man, I worked hard for all of this, and mm-hmm. I got to give it up now. Yeah. So I'm still struggling with that, but I'm getting a lot better with it. Mm-hmm. And trusting people, because there I didn't trust anybody. I yeah, tried. it freedom's a bitch. Yes, it is. I mean, it's, <laughs> just, it's a struggle every day, and people think it's, it's that you're going to come out here and be normal. You're not. Right. And I mean, that seems to me to be like almost a direct application of what yeah. we talk. You know, we live in a society where the government does take a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. and you will have more responsibility on a personal individual level. Yeah. If you're taking care of yourself with less government, mm-hmm. but it is a bitch, <laughs> you know, but it's a different kind of bitch. Well, because you're, at the end of the day, you're responsible for making right. sure that you have a bed to sleep in, that you yeah. have the meals, hopefully better than what you yeah. ate in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that there are plenty that don't. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you're personally, I, I remember when you got your cell phone mm-hmm. straight away, and I remember that I, I was like, I cannot believe they took advantage of you that way. Yeah. I mean, today it was, was it Verizon? Yeah, the the freebie, yeah, like it was the free. little the teaser thing that yeah. they do. And, you know, yeah. they get you hooked on some crazy mm-hmm. data plan that right. you don't, that you you don't need that. You <laughs> don't need that at all. Yeah. And, and the thing, they don't explain that to you. I'm out. Right, once again, I know nothing about none of this w- stuff. When I, when, <laughs> when I got divorced, because mm-hmm. I, I left my mom's house and got married... My wife took care of, care of a lot of that stuff. And then when I got divorced two years ago, I had to figure out, like, oh, how do I get how do I get a lease? How do I get pay for this? How do I, like, how do I budget? Like, I'm, and I'm still, like, trying to figure out. I mean, that, yeah, I could see how that, I, I relate to that because it is. It's very difficult to go, oh, shit, I've never paid a bill before. I Especially, gotta... right, if, the, if your spouse paid all the bills yeah. and did all those things. Right. Well, and on top of that. When you when you're in a situation where you're released and you're on parole, you've got responsibilities that you have to take care of before making sure you have a bed. Before yeah. you're all right. Before yeah. you make sure that you have that meal. Before you make sure you have you know heat, because you are, you have things that you've got to take care of to make sure you don't, don't go, back go back inside. So we'll, let's we'll get to that in just a second. I want to finish up with life inside. Um, 
I want to talk about gangs and yeah. and like there's pressure to join all, all these different groups. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you guys ever f- join any of these groups or did you feel like they're you, you like I'm just so weak, I'm just going to become a Muslim. <laughs> you know, or I'm being how intense is that pressure? And then on top of that, you know, there there are the Christian groups, the Muslim groups, which are probably I would hopefully imagine peaceful. Well, for me, I I never joined a game, but they were like pressuring me when I first got there. Mm-hmm. But I never did because I, I I told myself I don't need any protection in here. I really did. I thought I did. Right. But I, I was going to tell myself and convince myself I didn't. So I was going to make this out to be what I wanted it to be and not have someone control me. So so how do you how do you end up protecting yourself then if you're not affiliated? And it wasn't so much a protect I just stayed to myself. Gotcha. If I went to wreck, I wrecked by myself. I went to go shoot basketball by myself. So I was that loner for a long time. Right. So to them, oh he's weird. He don't talk to nobody. I like that. Yeah. I wanted to be weird. Because then they're not sure. <laughs> You're not going to try to come and recruit right. me because I'm weird. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I enjoyed that title. Give it to me. Yeah. And my weird self got out. <laughs> yeah. You see what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I, in, in my experience, I simply um, emulated um, what I learned um, from the Cook County Jail, from Joliet Stateville, Pontiac, and Illinois. And I became the monster. Mm. I became the bully of the bullies. And when I came to Indiana, when, when I came to Indiana and, and was incarcerated, I realized that this wasn't as bad as what I had just experienced. Sure. Um, whereas I had to. Back then, you wore phone books around your waist because mm. that was your vest. Yeah. Uh, you taped phone books around your waist because that way people couldn't stab you and you walked around with a knife all the time. But this was the 70s and the early 80s. Um, and so coming here um, to Indiana uh, in this prison system, it wasn't as intense. And so, um, but of course now I'm indoctrinated and I'm like, oh really? So I'm fighting every day. And mm-hmm. you know, and so I became a monster. You know what I mean? And um, um People just after when people see that you're willing to fight and, you know, people will try you. And that's one thing you're going to get tried Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. But when you uh, come back and you push back and you push back hard, people are like, whoa, you know, they don't because they really you've got to call the bluff. Um, And and that's it's a poker game. You've got to call the bluff. Mm -hmm. And when you call it, I call it ugly. Mm-hmm. When, when I call your bluff, I'm not only going to beat you up, but I'm going to beat you up and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to stomp you and I'm going to make sure that everybody sees it. I'm going to do it in front of everybody so that they know, well, if we mess with him, this is what we got to deal with. Yeah. And so after a while, you get that reputation. Darone had a reputation. I had a reputation. You, you, you get a reputation of who to mess with and who not to. Yeah. Um, some some people do it in different ways. I, I did it physically. Some people, like Daron, do, does it mentally. You know what I mean? And just that's how you navigate through um, prison. Did did you get into phys- physical altercations? Not one. Oh, okay. In eighteen years, not one. So just sticking to yourself, just mm-hmm. yeah. Because cause to me, I, I I put it in my mind mentally, and I'm gonna do other things instead of doing that. 
Right. There are ways I can get you. I was... I don't know why this is relevant, but this just strikes me. Um, I was 19. I'd grown up in the suburbs. Two two percent minority population. They were all Muslims. I think I knew one black person, mm-hmm. and uh, I worked for a congressional campaign in the heart of Center Center Township. And uh, so I was just saying to uh, uh, the black secretary, she was in her sixties. I go, man, I don't know if I want to go walking. Like, am I going to get messed with? And she's like. As long as you don't fuck with nobody, nobody's yeah. gonna fuck with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, I go, oh, okay. And I've kind of carried that. It's just as long as you don't fuck with people, f- people won't fuck with you. It's just a general life rule that Pat taught me. <laughs> and and, and if, if you go with that mentality in prison, it works. Yeah, yeah. it if works. You, you just if you don't start anything, there won't be anything. Yeah. Did you, I mean? Did you have friends? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you do. Gen- but I, I chose them wisely. Right. You see, I didn't want a friend who was in the game because then you're trying to. To manipulate me to being in the game. Yeah, I wanted to, the friends I chose were the ones going to college with me. Right, the okay. ones who 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 had something in common with me at the time. It's like every uh, yeah shared goals. Mm-hmm. We're gonna work on this together. So you managed to. So when do you find out that you're getting out? Well, one day the counselor came to me and said, "Well, the judge, the judge sent a letter and said that you're eligible for C." TP and that's community transition program, and that's just getting out a little earlier. Mm-hmm. Be it house arrest, be it uh, uh, what, what do you call it? work release? Sure. And I'm like, mm, but they're not going to give it to me. They're not going to give it to me. So and she said, well, they're not going to give it to you, but let's put it in anyway. So her giving me that did discouragement, and everybody around me telling me, oh man, they're not going to give it to you. You're sure. not getting that. And then one day she called me down and said, well, the judge approved you. I'm amazed. Mm. I said, well, me too. Where do I sign? <laughs> right. And so they, I signed it on a Tuesday. They came and got me Wednesday. And then I, mm. I come back to Indy, and I go to the community transition program place, and they put me on house arrest. But I have no home to go to. Who home am I going to on house right. arrest? Right. And so I agreed. My, my mother agreed to let me live there. So I was on there from April 2014 to I started parole in July 2014. So house arrest means you're confined to the to home. home. The only thing you can go to work, go to church. It's the only two things. But I didn't have a job, so I didn't can, work. Can you go look for a job? Mm-hmm. Okay. They, they give you like two hours a day. To gotcha. Go look for one. But when I got out on CTP, I earned that. That was something that good behavior, you earn it in prison. Right, right. But when I got there, they said, well, now you owe us $1,000 to be on this. I'm like, I'm on house arrest. I don't have a job. How am I going to pay you this? Okay, so wait. (laughs) You got the privilege Mm -hmm. of getting out early. Yes. You got the privilege of getting your freedom for a crime you did not commit. Yes. And then they made you pay them $1,000 a week? $1,000? No, it just the total of it was $1,000 for the 120 days I was on it. Okay. I'm like, well, I'm like, I don't have any money. Where the hell do you get $1,000? Yeah. How did you pay it? They say get a job. So I couldn't get a job for a while because no one would hire me. I'm on house arrest. I just got out of prison. And then I just got a call from Georgette one day, that, and that's Rupert's mother. Mm-hmm. And she said, you just come here for a while. But I think Rupert was kind of leery a little because I was a lot older than the guy. Yeah. You know? I was like 39. 
compared right, to right. a 23 year old <laughs> you know what i'm saying and, yeah and how will i adjust to dealing with someone like that and then i like i told him i said i was in prison with guys that were 19 20 21 22 and i dealt with that sure and so he gave me a chance and so i went there and i'm i, I paid it off and then we start working and working and working and then i said well, it's time for a change because to me the program was and i love the program 100 percent. rupert's kids yes yeah. but it was for guys who 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 didn't know a work ethic mm-hmm. and i think i did yeah and so i to me i was thinking the program was it wasn't a fit for me anymore sure so I started going out looking for other jobs. But that's the whole point of the program right. is, is for you is to that you're a success and you move on. And what? Let's talk about some of the success. I mean, what are some of the bright spots that you guys had in in prison? I mean, oh, were there any? A lot for me. I mean, I ended up graduating from college. Mm. I got an associate's degree and a bachelor's degree. Then I end up going back, and I couldn't get another degree as to say, but I got a workplace. I mean, certificate where mm-hmm. I don't, I, to this day, I don't know what it means. I'm sorry. <laughs> are, are, are your degrees from Ball State? Yes. Chirp, chirp. Yeah. That's where I went. Okay. And so, and then that, I end up getting my barber's license. Nice. And I end up getting a few, a few other vocations. And I was there for 18 years and only got three write ups. And I think that's a accomplishment Absolutely. within itself. And yeah. they're, they're only the, the lowest of the lowest write ups. And one of them I tried to get because I didn't want to leave the prison I was at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, one, one other thing that we wanted to talk about, because you were in a government prison and a private prison. Yes, yes. And you wanted to talk a little bit about the differences between the two. To me, the private prison was a lot easier to do my time at, mm-hmm. whereas the, gov- the, the government prison is just so it's so different there's so many different rules and strict it's, it's just totally different than the private now the private they treat us like we were humans there they respected us the guards interacted with us like but with respect where in the government prisons they don't respect you hmm. because it's more people in the government prison to me than it, it is in the private prison right and t- not as much i'm all for private. private prisons I salute whoever. All right. Well, that goes straight from the mouth. <laughs> yeah. Because previously we had not been for it. I mean, do you have experience with both? Absolutely. I mean, uh, that's where <laughs> I met Jerome yeah. um, uh, at, at at the uh, the private prison. Um, you know, <sighs> prison taught me a lot. Um, you know, I don't care what anyone says um, when you do a, the type of time that we've done. Uh, you can't walk away from that um, without learning something. Um, uh, and, and it's what I tell the gentlemen that I deal with on a regular basis now is when they come home, it's like, you know, no matter what type of storm that you're dealing with, whether it be good or bad, um, it's always going to be something that teaches you a lesson. Um, and even if it's something ugly and horrible that happens to you, you learn what not to do or what situation that you don't want to be in and again. And so that's how you, you look at life. You start looking at life as um, what are the opportunities? Where's the opportunity here? And that's what I learned from prison um, because you always had to think outside the box in order to make something work. Um, I was fortunate enough to... Um, just about everywhere I went, I was the dorm representative. 
Um, uh, and, and, and the reason for that was because I knew prison so well that um, when it was time for them to select a dorm representative, I was it. Um, and what does that mean? What is being dorm? a dorm representative is you basically represent everyone else that's in your dorm. If there's a hundred guys in there, then basically when they want to talk to someone or uh, about what's going on in, in the, in the, um, uh, in the in the institution or in the prison or in that particular pod, uh, then they talk to you instead of talking to everyone else because you're kind of like the field general or you know the guy that okay. makes sure that everything stays the way it should. The RA, absolutely. Yeah, the um, um, you make the TV schedule. Um, you know, just different things like that. Um, having that type of responsibility um, was helpful to me. Um, because it also, um, when you deal with negativity for so long, you realize that there's another side, mm -hmm. and that's the positive side. And 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 I think that um, um, uh, my relationship with Derone, um, it was always intellectual. We would we him and I would have some of the deepest conversations, and it was always about something positive and uplifting. Um, and um, when you get to the, that place in your life, it doesn't matter where you are, okay? You just simply start sharing and you start sharing the wisdom and you start, you know, getting, and that's kind of where I moved to. And so I was able to um, uh, become knowledgeable about, about the administrative side of it as well with the, with the opportunity that I had. And so I started beginning to understand the guards more, you know, because I started, you know, um, my counselor, who is now um, the assistant superintendent, based upon uh, some of the things that we, we did together, um, we started having these real in-depth conversations about prison, prison life, and what could be done, and how can we change, and how can we make it better. And you've got some people who are there that are still trying to do the right thing. So... Essentially, one of our, one of our f fundamental principles here is if you talk to each other, you come to a better understanding, and then you can work together, and yes. you can ma have a better outcome yes. if you stop looking at each other as enemies. Yes. This gentleman um, uh, allowed me to do something that was unprecedented, and because I shared with him, I said, you know, um, during count time, and, and, and I'm sure you remember how I would get up and I would always talk to the guys and say, if you can hear the sound of my voice, you're in the wrong place. Okay. And I would talk about, you know, where somebody's talking about your mom and, and it's talking about your kids and now you want to fight. Why do you want to fight them? Because basically, if you can hear the sound of my voice, you don't love your kids. You don't love your mom because you're in here with me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I, I started sharing those type of things with them and, and trying to get guys to, to start waking up. Mm -hmm. Because it's like you get so used to people being down on you. Mm -hmm. And you get so used to being pressed down yeah. that you become numb. And so I was trying to, you know, keep that life and that hope in people and make them understand that, hey, this is a choice. Because a lot of guys come back because they don't know nothing else, you know. And, and it's like, you know what, you've got to 
to start turning your life around. And it's, it's, it is so difficult for someone who has been incarcerated for a long period of time to come out here and with all the obstacles and all the hurdles, you know, um, I applaud anyone who uh, uh, can, can jump through all those hoops and still maintain a certain semblance of self that, you know what, I can make this. I can yeah. do this. You know what I mean? That's so, a huge blessing to, to to be that drink of water to people who are desperately thirsty. Well, and, but it taught me valuable lessons that I brought home with me this last time. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time um, I was I was convicted um, at the age of forty six, they gave me a twenty five year sentence. Mm. And so basically, they I was thinking they were saying to me, "It's over for you." You know, of course, this was what Bill Clinton, um, you know, three strikes, you know what I mean? You're out, all of that, you know what I mean? And so um, when I got that time, it just gave me a wake-up call, and it made me realize that, you know, every time that I had gotten out before, I would always wait until right before I got out, and then, I, you know, I'd try to be good and be like, okay, I'm going to do all the right things, and I'd get out there, and they wouldn't give me a job, and they wouldn't give me this, and I was like, you know what? It is so much easier to be to be bad than it is to be good. Yeah. Um, being good takes work. Yeah. Um, be, doing the right thing takes work and it takes effort. Um, being bad is very, very easy. Um, you know, going and robbing somebody or taking somebody else's stuff. You know, uh, I remember um, that was one of the things that, you know, when I, when I would tell people about my experiences of, you know, how I got on my road to going to prison, you know, um, I used to tell them that, you know, my mom used to take me, me and my sister used to drag us to church all the time. Mm-hmm. And then um, one day I was able to make a decision of whether I could, you know, whether I would go or not. You know, of right. course, my decision was not, you know, um, but then it was about can you, um, what I would do is I would go work for what? Why would I work when I can go out and ask people for money? Right. You know what I mean? Well, asking became stealing. Mm-hmm. Stealing became taking, taking became robbing, robbing became stabbing, stabbing became shooting, and shooting was my one-way ticket to prison. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, it just evolves. Sure, you know what I mean. And and it took me a long time to realize that I'm really not a bad guy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. really not a hardened criminal like they want people to believe that I am. If you look at me in black and white on the paper on my files, you are reading about a monster. Yeah. But if you meet me in person, you're delightful. Hey, you know, it's like, <laughs> wait a minute. Really? And, and and when people hear 26 years, they're like, it's, it freezes them. They're like, wow, really? Mm-hmm. And now they, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't know, you know. But usually the more time they spend around me, the more they realize, Really? Yeah. You know, and and so I haven't uh, felt like he was going to kick my ass one time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's. Uh, but uh, if if I give you like a twenty, listen, you to beat me. the shit out of Brad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I've I've been blessed um, since I've been home. Um, and trust me, you know, because I don't want to sugarcoat it and make people think that oh, you know, you came out and everything was wonderful. Um, I had a lot of hurdles to jump over mm-hmm. and a lot of hoops to jump through, but. What I found was the the harder I tried, the more people were willing to help me. Yeah. And the more the more vulnerable 
I made myself and just shared with people what I was really going through instead of trying to act like I was this macho man and nothing, everything was bouncing off to me like I did in prison. Puffed up. Right. Um, you know, because that was kind of what shy people away. And so I was just, I was humble. I was, you know, I was just me. And I was like, look, you know, I'm struggling. I'm going through it. If you help me, I promise you, you'll see that there's something here. Uh, slowly but surely, um, the hardest thing was finding someone I could trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to um, a lot of our local reverends, the church, and boy, I got screwed over really, really bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I got done. I mean, yeah. truly done. Uh, I am. A, I write, and I write well. Right. Um, prison does that to you. I write well, and. There is a organization that I will remain will remain nameless, mm-hmm. um, but they are very in the news. Okay, uh, when I came home, I went to this person, and I said, "Hey, look, you know, I'm just out. I'm looking for a mentor, someone to kind of guide me through." And well, what can you do? I said, "Well, I can write." They said, "Well, I got some interviews, and you know, write me something and show me, you know." So I wrote. Um, a couple of articles on violence. Um, I wrote a couple of articles on when is enough enough, and it was about the prison system and you know how it just stretches out and it just drags you through the mud. Well, he took these articles and he was supposed to give me a stipend. You know, just he said, "Well, we'll give you a little something." So, because you know, we know you don't have a job. Well, he took my stuff, and next thing you know, I saw it published under his name in. You know, the papers mm-hmm. and da da da. And I was like, really? Yeah. And I was devastated. I truly was because I here I was, I know the monster in me, mm. you know. Um and 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 people there knew the monster in me. It's disrespect. Exactly. Right. And it's like, and now I want to do something about that. And I'm like, you can't do that. You'll go back to prison forever. Right. And you'll die there. And so I was hurt for a long time. A lot of tears, a lot of, you know, really, this is what they're doing out here? Right. And so I, I, and I got really untrustworthy about everybody. It was like, nah, I'm cool, I'm cool. Then slowly but surely, things started to change. Um, uh, and it was because, and what I tell people now is, show up. Just show up. If you show up, somebody's going to help you. And I started just going to things, I, and, and I started going to, someone asked me to come to a um, Marion County Reentry Coalition meeting, mm-hmm. okay? I'm a, I'm a member of the MCRC. Um, and I went, and I started sharing, you know, because they are all about trying to figure out um, different ways to help uh, offenders do better in society and, and that type of thing. Um, we have so many different strategies that we work with. Um, but from there, people started finding out that, huh, he's got half a brain. Yeah. You know, yeah. and okay, let's kind of listen to and kind of use him as a sounding board to see how we can move forward. Mm-hmm. And from that, uh, of course, there you have um, people from the mayor's office, people from um, DOC, you have prosecutor's office, you know, all of those entities are represented. And so. I started getting exposure. And then someone said, well, why don't you come and, and, and share with us on the radio? And I was like, okay. And so I did that. And, and it's all about showing up and being present. And then you meet people. 
Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, and then they introduce you to people and yeah. it and becomes networking. And, and the next thing, you know, I mean, it just grows from there and your confidence builds. Yeah, and I think it's maybe on the inside, you know, you're you're in there for 18 years and you're thinking, man, I'm all by myself in here. It's all on me. I'm all alone. It's going to be different on the outside. It isn't. Right. <laughs> right. You you get trust me. You are all by yourself if you're outside, but the more vulnerable you are, the more you get out there, the more you network, the more real, the, you, the are. More real you are, yeah. the better, yep. the better you, you know, listen, I'm a shithead. I'll admit it, but I'm trying not to be a shithead, mm. <laughs> you know, and everybody else is the same way. Brett, you're a shithead. You're, yep. tr- you're trying, trying, mm-hmm. you're trying, you know, it's just, that's human. That's being human, Yeah. you know, and I appreciate you guys coming and sharing your story. Um, you know, we didn't get really get to talk a lot about the burdens of what it's like to, to, to get out of the system. And maybe we'll have a follow-up episode here really soon to kind of go more in-depth about what it's like after. Yeah. yeah. You know, because sure. we're, we're almost at two hours. And, I, you know, we could probably talk another two about Easy. that easily. Easy. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, I'm sure you guys, you know, you got family and all that kind of stuff. I, I of course, have cats. So <laughs> I can, if you guys well, want to hang out for a couple more, I've and, got time. And your new cat lunchbox. My new cat lunchbox, which <laughs> I will course. be keeping cat litter in. Um, but so I'd like to have you guys back to kind of talk a little bit about that process of getting out because I don't think people really understand this. You know, Rupert really opened my eyes to this is you've got a kid goes in the system, you know, the only economic viable economic situation that they've got is selling drugs. Mm -hmm. They get pot for pot. They go in, they learn how to be a better criminal. They get addicted. They come out, they start selling and using they go back in, they get out, they go back in, they go back, you know, and they have the same mindset that you described. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't have $150 a week to give you because I can't get employed because society thinks that I'm black and white, I'm an awful person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where am I going to get $150? Fuck it. It's just easier to steal and rob somebody. Well, and the thing, too, is when you come home, and, and I'll just touch on this quickly. When you come home um, and, and you're going to these agencies, and there are a lot of agencies, and you know, I went to a lot of them uh, thinking that they were going to aid and assist me. Um, what they do uh, end up doing is they have you fill out an application. The reason that they're filling out the application is because this is proof to the people who are giving them their grant money mm-hmm. that they've you served sure you. Mm-hmm. But they, uh, they basically have not served you because then after you fill out the application, they're like, we'll come back and, and see us and we'll try and see what we can do and blah, blah, blah. Well, now they've gotten what they needed from you and then they basically don't give you, provide you with any uh, type of services or, or the things that you need in order to make it and then you're still strapped with i'm paying 13 dollars every time I, I i i call the drug hotline and they tell me that i got to take a drop where am i getting this 13 dollars from right you know what i mean um i've got probation fees of a thousand dollars the court fees that they gave me for court costs i don't have any money i don't have a job yet and so all of these these um, bills are stacking up and so it becomes like man you know what let me just go and do the easy way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and then now I'm back in the system, you know what I mean? And all, and after a while, the system becomes so comfortable, it's alluring. And yeah. you know what? The one thing, the worst thing that happened to me when I was in the throes of that in and out, in and out, in and out, is I became fearless. Mm-hmm. The worst thing you can do to a human being is to become fearless. Mm-hmm. Because when you're not afraid of anything anymore, fear is a... 
is is a barometer and there's a reason for fear yeah. but when you get to the place where you're not fear, uh, not afraid of anything anymore it, it it's detrimental to you you know because now it's like okay so what are they what's the worst they can do to me lock me up i've mastered prison mm-hmm. yeah so i'm not afraid of anything so and now now you've created a monster that's out here on the streets that doesn't care anymore. Now I don't care about I have, my conscience has been erased. I don't care about taking someone else's life. You the, know what I mean? The fundamental drive. I mean, fear, shame, and guilt. And once you've lost those, right? <laughs> then it's, it's right. you're an ugly person, right? You know, and you're someone who should be feared. Right. And those that's when you become that person. Like I said earlier, that there are some people that they need to lock them up and throw away the key because you've basically created something that you can't control anymore. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, this has been enlightening and and uh, I think really helpful for a lot of us who, who just don't understand but want to want to. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that there are um, people like yourself and, and definitely glad to have met all of you um, today. But I, I think that there are so many people out there who want to understand, yeah. but they really don't know whether or not they can trust the information that they're getting. Sure. And, and, and so many people have the same thing that we dealt with in prison. So many people have other agendas yeah. as to mm-hmm. why they share the certain type of information with you. Right. Uh, and then you're wondering, oh, okay, well, that's the way it is. And then you have so many people out here that think, oh, well, they're all right. They got TV. They got, you know what I mean? They've got all the amenities. And so, you know. So so let me ask, I mean, do you think that in, in prison you're just seeing human beings at their most base level and at the just the fundamental raw humanity of that of that game of manipulation and networking? It's the same out here. Is it the same out here and it's just better hidden? It's better hidden out Yeah, it's Absolutely. there's easy. It's, you're yeah. le, you're not as focused on it, right? Because you have Angry Birds. It's subtle. Well, yeah. and and you can walk away out here, right? Yes. You know, you know, you yeah. realize when somebody is trying to manipulate you, they're trying to get something from you that you can just walk away, right? You have that. You don't have to deal with them. Yeah, right. you have a, a a touch of freedom of association. Maybe not as much as sure. Chris or Chloe or myself would like. Um, but you, you can walk away and you can say, that's not for me. I don't want to have anything to do with right, you because right. I can tell that you are a bad person or that you are trying to manipulate me or you want something from me. I'm just not going to play your game. You can do that out here. But in there, you wake up and that guy is sitting there looking at you when you wake up. And it's yeah. Now, that's an intimidating I look right there. I yeah. can't, I can't <laughs> this guy. You know. See, so. Darone, Richard, you guys could be the next Oprah. You've seen humanity at its most base. You didn't, you can, you, you've mastered it. you figured it out. And now you can bring it to the world. And we're, we're happy to, to have uh, had you on to share your story. Uh, well, at the end of the show, what we do is uh, this may be self-promotion. I'm just guessing it's probably more Richard's forte than Daron's forte. But we want to give everybody the floor. If there's anything that you missed... You didn't get to talk about. You want to go back and revisit, self-promote, talk about your project, whatever. Get a few minutes just to kind of carry on. Uh, if you need tips on self-promotion, Daron, mm-hmm. here's a guy who just Lobra Bittner sold makes his own t-shirt, t-shirts, with face on them for twenty-five dollars. Uh, so, Chloe, we'll start with you because you're you're a veteran of the show. So, why don't you show veteran. them show well, them how it's done? 
Sure. Well, um, first off, I just want to thank you guys for being willing and open to share your story because um, I think it's very powerful and hopefully a lot of people listen and can take away from it and can start to dive more into how corrupt this system is because I think it's really important. Um, I don't really have much else to say except that I'm back from my little sabbatical and now I'm excited to be on the show more and have Excellent. the chance to write more and we're happy to have you back, I'll be here. and we're uh, glad you're done with all that Miss Indiana bull. I mean, uh, Miss Indiana. Stuff. <laughs> By the way, she played the piano beautifully. She, oh, thank you. She uh, and I missed my big opportunity to see Cat, her sister. Oh, she wasn't it. there on Thursday. I know, that but night, I, she so. was there Saturday. She was there Saturday, and I missed it. And I will marry in the Nagos. You're not marrying my sister, oh, I'm going so to. you can stop right now. <laughs> I'm going to. Uh, and congratulations on your award. Thanks. Thank you. Best interview. Yes. So Have the wall folks to thank for that. If it weren't for all the articles and conversations, I wouldn't be able to talk current events good. So Well, then please bring your trophy and set it on our, our wall of trophy. Uh, for, that's, for a minute, and we'll take a picture, right. and then I'll take that's, it home. Uh, I don't know if you know Larry Vaughn, Crazy Larry. That's, yeah. that's his uh, paper hat. That's Donald Trump's water. Right. Uh, we got all kinds of trophies up there. <laughs> Rupert's Flint from Survivor. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Daron, yes. any final thoughts for us here? With me, I just want to thank you guys for letting us come. Absolutely. And, I know what we said is not going to change everybody's opinion about the criminal justice system, but at least I just want people to open their hearts and understand that there's, there's, there are more people out there like me and Samuel who, who, who do want to come out and do the right thing Yeah, if we only get that chance. Yeah. And that's it for me. All right. Little Brett Bittner. Little Brett Bittner. Well, I uh, I want to thank everybody who uh, did their duty in donating to Wall through the uh, Never Bittner T-shirts. That was right. a lot of fun. Um, I want to thank you guys for uh, Wall Live Monday. I had a blast, even though I was dead tired. Yes, and thank you for coming. Coming back after walking like twenty, just a couple more blocks. Just a couple more blocks, guys. In DC, just a, few more just a couple more blocks. We'll make and, it. Right. Um, I do want to shout out to uh, some of the folks at Freedom Works, uh, Brandon Morse, um, who's with Red State, Jason Pye. I want to remind you that we are recording in what used to be a Benihana. Yes. Salad bar over here. Soft serve station right over here. Sprinkle fountain Sprinkle coming fountain. through the roof. Oh, it, it it's it's beautiful, and you guys would really appreciate it. The thousands of listeners that we have are appreciative of your inside jokes. <laughs> well, that's actually one of the biggest complaints that I have about Wall is all the inside jokes. So I had to bring one from D.C. <laughs> to here. Um, I want to give a shout out to uh, Fingers Malloy for starting the Benihana joke. Okay, and uh, he's actually here in Noblesville. Yes, and, uh, I hopefully we'll have him on. I've heard him before as a as a guest, or uh, maybe just to hang out and talk about all the places in Indianapolis that used to be Benihanas. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, Vice President Elect Tom Cotton. Okay, um, fuck you. Another <laughs> go fuck yourself. Hey, Greg. Greg would be very happy to know that we're pretty sure he's going to be Trump's running mate. So. The most evil man in America. Um, you want to know who the most evil politician in America is? Look up Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. Junior the, Senator. From the dude is is a cray monster. Cray. Um, but but seriously, I, I don't want to thank you, Daron, for sharing the story. We've never really talked about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was awesome to get to know more. Yeah. So I appreciate that. It was great to meet you, Sam. Well, thank you for coming. Same here. I'm uh, I'm glad Daron said, "Hey, can I bring can I bring my friend?" <laughs> Um, and uh, I look forward to uh, spending some time with you and Paula and, and the kids. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, getting to know you better. Absolutely. All right, Richard. Yeah, um, definitely um, appreciated the time on your show. Um, definitely, this is a conversation that needs to continue. Um, um, hope that uh, those out there who are listening um, um, have a little a deeper insight as to what it's like to be incarcerated, and 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 um, hopefully we've touched on some of the things, um, um, the the burdens that we deal with coming home. Um, that may uh, spark new conversation and and try and build solutions. Uh, um, you know, I, I just uh, uh, know that also since I can promote myself. Please, um, please, yes. uh, uh, um, definitely. Um, these are the type of conversations that I have on my radio show, um, Growing Indie uh, Reentry Radio, specifically uh, all ex offender all the time. Uh, we talk about resources. Um, we talk about um, the Think First Initiative. Uh, the Think First Initiative is is basically um, how I changed by thinking the way you know, changing the way I thought, mm-hmm. um, my thought processes, um, of course, um, and um, collaboration um, is so important. Um, I, I, I try to partner with any organization that is doing something positive to uplift the city of Indianapolis. And, and uh, when I see, you know, people uh, such as yourself moving in the right direction, having the conversations that need to be had, those are the people that uh, Growing Indy definitely wants to partner with uh, and uh, uh, to make some things happen. So Awesome. Thank well, thank you. you very much. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure to have, have all of you on except Brett. <laughs> Uh, th- Anytime, Spangle. Thank you for uh, joining us here on this episode of We Are Libertarians. Uh, this will be the third show that we we are uploading five hours of show today uh, to the We Are Libertarians feed. So you are getting your money's worth, which several of you are donating, but not enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are listener-supported radio. Uh, you know, if you, you want to hear this kind of conversation that I don't think you hear a lot... Uh, anywhere else, uh, then please support us through Patreon. Buck a show, $5 a month. That really helps us out. Go to our Amazon wish list, help us upgrade our equipment so we can do more. Like I said, because you've been generous and you guys have been donating and you guys have been supporting our work, we're giving you more. Uh, And I've got a four-day weekend, and I'll be building out our membership program so there will be a subscription to We're Libertarians you're going to get some benefits and extra shows and extra stuff uh, so uh, as a thank you for helping support us financially and grow this and uh, be able to bring you more conversations like this one you know Chloe and I have been talking about how we can uh, do something to promote her and, and maybe she'll uh, be as generous as some other people mm-hmm. with their, uh, their fun times and their, their inside jokes but we uh, we'll, we'll work on doing a little sometimes Chloe goody. Always Chloe, never Bittner. No, no, it's Look sometimes, at sometimes Chloe. Sometimes Chloe. Sometimes Chloe. Sometimes Chloe. There, there, there might be a, a goody coming their way that, that we're might on. give six dollars to Wall instead of five. <laughs> oh, up in your game. I see how it is. <laughs> All right. Well, so thank you, thank you so much, uh, and please share. This is a conversation that needs to be had, and your friends need to hear it, and we need you to share it. And share it with the hashtag justice for all. All right, cool. Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at wearelibertarians.com.